Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and today I catch up with a guy who's gone from being a chippy on a building site to become one of the most well-known TV personalities in the country. His name, of course, is Scott Cam, and he's a classic Aussie who's made it big, and I'm always keen to know what has helped a normal person become abnormally successful. I believe success leaves clues, and I'm keen to show you those clues, and this guy, Scott Cam, has plenty of them to show. Welcome to the program, Scott Can. Thank you very much, Pete, for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I've got to say, in doing research, and I didn't think I really needed to do any research, but in doing it, I came across an unusual, what I, well, I think is a fact, that your real name is Caminetti. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, not my name, but I was born Scott Cam, but yeah. my dad was born Caminetti, yeah. uh, and we come from a heritage of Italian background of, of professional fishermen, yeah. and, uh, and my dad did that at the start of his career, and so did my grandfather and my great-grandfather. So uh, it was a long line of uh, fishermen that came from Italy in 1882, mm-hmm. and we continued a business here uh, in Australia, uh, working out of Piermont, and, uh, and then my dad went into frozen fish when the, the steam engine sort of died out. And uh, we, the name was changed during the war because of the, uh, you know, the Italians uh, being the enemy on the wrong side. Yeah. So it was tough to have a business that had Caminetti and Sons. So they changed it to Cam and Sons, even though they'd been here since 1882 yeah. for like three or four generations already. No, that's staggering. So I, I was really you know, keen to, to hear that. And I believe, you, have you done the SBS program, Who Do You Think You yeah. Are? Yeah, I did that uh, a couple of years ago. That was really fascinating. I travelled all uh, over Italy, down right down the south of Sicily, where we came from, in a town called Gallico. Yeah. And then I went over to the UK from on my mother's side, which were the horse traders over there and gypsies and travellers, you know, travelling um, caravan people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating history. Much to my mother's, uh, uh, she was very upset at that. She thought she was going to come from some sort of aristocracy. <laughs> <or something. laughs> and, and I guess, therefore, you would have probably enjoyed watching Peaky Blinders because there's um, there's travelling Irish gypsies in that television program as well. Yeah, I haven't seen Peaky Blinders, but my kids are telling me to watch that all the time. Oh, so you, I must love get onto it. It. you love it. You love it. You absolutely yeah. love it. Anyway, let's get to the to the real Scott Cam um, or Caminetti. How, how did you actually go from the building site to television? Well, it was something that I was never chasing or never thought of. Television was another universe. And um, and you know what you were like, Pete. You, you were not even involved in the media in any way. And then all of a sudden, an opportunity just arose. And all of a sudden, boom, you're in it for the next 30 years. Yeah. Um, and it was no longer. And um, I, I was a carpenter from 17 to, uh, well, when I was first approached in a pub in Bondi Junction where I used to drink every afternoon with my <laughs> mate, um, I was 37 at that time. Right. So I'd been working already for 20-odd years uh, as a, as a chippy with my business. I had a few boys working for me. And this bloke said, we're looking for a carpenter. He just pulled me up out of the pub because he was there with his girlfriend. 
And he said, we're looking for a carpenter to do a TV show that we're going to do. And I said, oh, mate, look, that's not my go. I don't know anything about that. And um, blah, blah, blah. But then he got the number off my ute and uh, rang me up the next day and he came and did a screen test. And, and then he rings me up and says, you got the job, mate. We, we, uh, the bloke that's running it likes you and wants you to do it. Be the Carpenter on Backyard Blitz was the show. Mm. And that, Pete, was 21 years ago. And and that was with – was Jamie Drury the host of the yeah, show? Yeah, yeah. He, um, he was also found, uh, as was Nigel Ruck and Jody Rigby, were all found by um, a fellow named Stuart Clark, mm. who is still working in television these days, and, um, and he worked for Don Burke. So Don Burke was organising the show and running it, and, and that's how we, we got on – uh, to that show right from the start. I was in the pub. I don't know where the others were, but uh, that's that's my story, yeah. like in the pub. And some people think it's a waste of time, you know, going to a pub. It obviously, it was the, the place that you <laughs> needed to be in. And I, I've got to ask this question because, I, you know, I figure I probably I – what, what year did you leave school? I left school in 1980. Yeah, and I think I may well have left Waverley by then. I might have been at Grammar because when I, I left you – you you weren't in any way an ocker. You were a fairly quiet spoken kid. I know you always had a, a bit of a, a larrikin side to you, but you weren't as ocker as you are today. And there's nothing wrong with ocker. I, some people might think I'm a bit ocker as well. But when do you think you you came out of your own shell and became the big personality that you are today? I think, mate. Look, I think I was always a bit of a, a bit of a loud mouth, you know, at <laughs> school. And for the folks listening at home that don't realise. Mr. Switzer taught me at school, taught me commerce. That's right. But you were very well <laughs> you were behaved. My yeah, yeah, you, 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 you weren't necessarily the smartest kid in the class, but you were always well behaved, I found. You know why I was well behaved? Because I liked you as a teacher. When the teachers I didn't like, I was a, I was a bit of a mongrel. So if I was happy with the bloke that was teaching me, I'd just sit there and listen. But yeah. when the ones that were no good that I didn't like, I, that's when I probably was a bit loudmouthy and, and uh, carried on. I wasn't a very good student. You know that, Pete. As you say, I wasn't the smartest kid in the, in the school. And uh, I certainly wasn't even close. But, uh, mate, I think that I left home very young. You know, like as soon as school finished, I basically moved out and went, I went and worked up north for a bit. And uh, with my brother Brad, who you know, yep. and um, and then we did it. We did that for a while. Then I went and worked out in the bush for a long time, and travelled around Australia. Or well, after my apprenticeship, I travelled around uh, in the bush, and um, uh, the part of the bush was that apprenticeship. But um, and then uh, I travelled around Australia working um, for about six or seven years, and then I worked in sheep and cattle stations, and I worked all over the place. And that's where I got to love that, you know, that Australian humour. And mm. and, and uh, I spent basically my 20s, um, you know, working in the bush. And, and, and uh, I suppose that formed my adult personality. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly shows. And what, what, you're pretty good at sport. What, did, what happened to your sporting career over those years? Uh, yeah, I played out at uh, – I was working out at Penrith uh, for a, a while and I played first-grade rugby union out there. Um, and uh, I played a bit of footy after that, and uh, I got a few injuries. I dislocated my shoulder a few times. And uh, when you're a carpenter, you know, that's sort of that's the death knell, that's the end of it, because mm. you can't keep taking three weeks off when you dislocate your shoulder. No. Um, and, and then I got a bad injury on my, on my leg. I got 20 stitches in my leg uh, from a game of footy, and then that was sort of the end of it for me. I was probably about uh, 26 or something like that when I stopped playing footy. When did you go into business for yourself? Uh, when I came back from travelling around, I, I was sort of running 
my own thing when I was traveling around, but I was sort of like subbing for other blokes and, and, and doing that sort of jazz. But I, I think uh, probably mid late twenties, twenty eight, something started my own show and then and then uh, I had a few boys. I've had four or five apprentices over that time and uh, they're all got their own businesses now, which are Anne and I, my wife, are very proud of, but they're all got their own families and their own businesses and, and they came to us as seventeen year old boys and it was terrific. You know, we nurtured them all the way along. Not only in carpentry, but I like to nurture my boys in the moral code as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so quite a distinctive moral code of uh, Scott Cam. It'd be a good moral code as well, I, I would say. I do have a, a decent moral code. You know, I like to do the right thing in life and, and uh, raise my children with that strong moral code. And, mm. and I did the same with my apprentices. And, and they've all turned out terrific boys. And they're, they're all, uh, as I said, got three kids and, and their own businesses and doing really well. You know, as I reflect upon your moral code and, and what you've done, I also remember that at the same time, at the same school, maybe a year or so below was Costa Georgiatis, the, the famous SBS gardener. Was he a mate of yours? He, he was there, but, you know, I didn't know Costa then because he was actually about three years below me. Yeah. So you never really knew the kids that were, a lot, you know, two or three years below you because you, you knew them, but I didn't know of, of him that well. But, mm. yeah, he is a terrific guy and another product of Wave. Slavery College, as you are, as yeah. I am, and Peter Cosgrove, the Governor General. Yep, there's some former. There, there's some there's some dodgy ones as well, but we'll just focus on the on the ones worth remembering. <laughs> there was a well. lot of dodgy like that. I think I could be categorised in the dodgy group. As no well, way, no way, no way, no <laughs> way. Well, now you've you made the the point that in your wildest dreams you never saw yourself as being a TV star, but when you started no. the back, Backyard Blitz, did you start saying to yourself, "Gee, this isn't bad." And, doesn't seem too hard and, and people seem to like me or was it a bit tough at the beginning? Uh, it wasn't that tough, mate. I didn't get that nervous in front of the camera and, of course, you've got to remember I'm talking about something I already know about. Mm. So it's nothing I have to learn. I was talking about stuff that was just part of my life. So it wasn't – and if I didn't get nervous in front of the camera, I could get, get up and talk about it. Um, you know, the first couple of public speaking appearances I did were – someone got me up to talk, I was pretty nervous for that. But once I got used to that, I do that all the time now and, and I'm, I'm all right with it. But I think, look, at the end of the day, mate, I had three young kids. I had uh, When I started on Backyard Blitz, I had three-week-old twins and a two-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> and uh, and I was a carpenter and I was terrified about being able to afford this mm. and pay for it and school and all that sort of thing. And, and of course, my wife had to stop work having twins. We weren't didn't plan on that one. And so she had two babies at home plus a two-and-a-half-year-old. So that was it. She couldn't get a job. And so I was sort of – so this, to me, was a bit of a um, an hourly rate that was permanent within my business. And I was working on the show two days a fortnight or three days a fortnight, something like that, and I'd get paid a, a rate per, per day. And to me, it was just a bit of steady income coming in, mm. as you know how sometimes people that um, – you know, the trade life is and yep. you're chasing money all the time and you're struggling to get paid and you, there's a lot of times you don't get paid and that happened all the time. So this, to me, was an hourly rate that was just part of the family. I was paid, I was treating it as a job and I was treating it as something that would bring money into my family. Mm. When, when did it become apparent to you that this was more than – going to be just a little bit of money on the side, that actually there was a, a real career here for, for Scott Cam in television? Look, mate, probably only really about 
I've been at Channel 9 for 21 years this year, mm. and um, I'm just coming up to the anniversary of my 21st year. So I probably think about eight years ago, um, I started thinking, well, I'm sort of cemented, I suppose, as a builder in the Channel 9 family, and uh, and if there is a building show on, then I've probably got half a chance of getting it. Of course, there's young blokes coming through all the time, Um but I really work hard at my job to make sure I do it well. And then that way people that are making those shows go, well, let's get him because it'll be easier to get him and we know we'll get it done. And that's not to take anything away from the young guys that are coming through. I wish them all the best and I give them as much encouragement and help as I can. If anybody is coming through, I always try and look after them. But, you know, mate, every year that I was going into Channel 9, I'd say to my wife, well, this, this will probably be the last year. You know, and we did that for many years, and uh, I never treated it like it was a permanent thing because I always had to think about when it stopped that I needed to keep making money to feed the family, and um, so that was uh, that's again I treated it like a job and not a privilege um, uh, or entitlement that uh, it could stop at any moment. But then, look, I was very lucky that the block turned up for me. I'd done about six or seven different shows for the network. And then the block turned up for me and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get another couple of years out of that. So, um, you know, that, that'll be good if we can get two, two or three more years. And, of course, that was 10 years ago. Mm. So I've been doing the block on this section here uh, since 2010. And do you still build on the side or is, it, is the, the television building so um, time-consuming you just can't run, you know, cam enterprises anymore? Yeah, look, it is. It's too consuming, and I do a fair bit of corporate work for uh, some of our sponsors that are on the show, which is an essential part of television these days. You need to have sponsors to help you make the show, and that's just part of it. Uh, and I do work for them, like Mighty Tan and uh, Bisley Workwear and things like that. So, And I've got voiceovers to do for the show. I have to narrate the entire series, which is 55 episodes, and uh, that, there's a fair bit of work in that. So mm. I don't have a business going at the moment. I still do build, but just for myself. Like I renovated my son's room in lockdown um, uh, and did some work there in Billy's room. And then um, I've got a I've got a farm and I'll go up there and do a bit of work up there and do some improvements and things like that. So I still do build, but not, not for clients, just for, just for myself. Who's been the biggest influence in TV on you? Oh, that's a... That's a very good question. Um, you know, initially in the early days, um, I suppose, you know, Don Burke was um, in the first couple of years I was with him and uh, he, he sort of got me started. And then I, I suppose for me, there, there was a lot of cameramen, um, and you may be aware of this, but the cameramen, I think, are the best judges of mm. all time. Mm. So they've worked on every show because they're freelancers, so they go from show to show to show. And... Um, and they work with a lot of presenters and they work with a lot of uh, people that, that present, uh, that are hosting shows and things like that. And I, I believe that they're a big judge of how things go. And I used to stick with a few cameramen over the years that really, um, you know, were truthful. And that's a big thing in TV is people go, mate, you're doing a terrific job, and then you get sacked the next, you know, <laughs> yeah, the next that, week. That can happen. Because not, you're not doing a good job at all, and they go, well, well, let's get rid of him behind the scenes, and then they go, mate, it's all over. Mm. And so cameramen go, mate, that's no good. Do it again. Yeah. And that's what I used to like about the honesty from Cameron, because I, I became very good friends with the boys because they're all, you know, they're my style. They're tradesmen. Mm. They're, they're the tradesmen of the TV industry, the cameramen and the sound days. Uh, certainly some producers along the way have been fantastic for me, and, 
And uh, like the cameraman that I go, I know, like Peter Vidulich, Dean Hayden, Nigel Rungeon, they're the big cameramen that I've worked with over the years that have really been influential on me. And um, my cameraman right now is Nigel Rungeon. And he's a terrific bloke, you know, and we, we have a fantastic working relationship. And that's comforting for me when we're working hard and, and uh, we've got a lot to do and we've got a lot to get out in the studio and it's a bit of pressure and things like that. So those sort of guys, have, there's been some great producers, Julian Cress, David Barber, Justin Sturzegger, they're the blokes that run the block. I've worked with them for the last 10 years. And, um, you know, Julian Cress uh, writes a lot of my scripts and he does... He writes them in my words, and uh, he does a terrific job for me. So he's been a big influence on me as well. Do you, do you think being able to cop feedback, which occasionally can be a bit rough, um, has been a part of your success story? Because you know, there are some people who won't be told and, and they don't want to be uh, you know, reformed or changed or improved. Do you think you, you've been a, someone willing to <coughs> you know, cop criticism and then come back better as a consequence of it? <coughs> Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Right? I think the big thing in telly is there are a lot of people out there that try and produce you a certain way and turn you into what they believe you you are. And that's what I think my longevity is, <clears throat> that I've stayed me all the way through and I haven't let producers overproduce me mm. and try and change me. Like if a producer says, can you say it this way? I say, no, I can't because that's not how I would say it. And if I was saying it that way, that means I'd be you. So let's swap places. You, I'll get the clipboard and you come and do what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, so that was a little bit of a one I used to say a fair bit when some blokes that weren't experienced with me yeah. would try and say, um, can you say it like this? Or can you act like this? Or, yeah, nah, I act. I've been rehearsing Scott Cam for 57 years. I've got it down pat. <laughs> In life, who, who's your biggest influence? Uh, I, I, mate, that's a really tough one because my dad died very young and um, when I was young. And uh, so I would like to say my dad, but we, you know, we were, I was too young and I was away and, and we, you know, he was a great influence for me when I was a kid with that moral code I was talking about yep. because he created that. And I think now, unbelievably, my children are my biggest influence. Because they've got a stronger moral code than I have at times, so I do things to not let them down. Uh, and and, uh, and we're a really close family. And and uh, I find my eldest son Charlie is my is my code to live by. You know, he's a really terrific young man, and mm. he's got some great thoughts and and great ideas. So he, he, he astounds me sometimes at how um, mature he thinks. And I know when I was his age of twenty four. I was just like hopeless, just running around like a madman. And uh, and he's very stable and, and uh, has great fun, loves a beer, loves footy, you know, and he's just a – he's a big influence on me. And uh, I'll, I'll now tell him I said that because I hadn't actually thought about that before, Pete, and uh, it's, a, it's actually probably the case. Uh, as far as influences earlier on, I was a really a one-man show when I was a young bloke. I was running around – and I had the attitude of advice only suits the people giving it. Mm. That was my attitude to life up until my, uh, well, pretty much now. <laughs> I really believe that uh, advice is great, but it really only suits the person giving it to you. It's what they would do. And, it's, you know, they don't know what's inside my head and what I'm thinking. So, obviously, you get a bit of advice on um, 
how to how to deal with your bosses and things like that. You get a bit of advice from management and stuff like that. But as far as life decisions go over the years, I've been a one man band really. I've made my own decisions and and you know, like if I said to a young bloke, I think you should become this. I think you should become a carpenter because that's be good for you. And that wouldn't well, wouldn't suit me. But this kid goes, I, I want to be a professional musician in his mind. You know, so being a carpenter doesn't suit him at all. Mm. And I don't know that. So uh, that's my theory on advice, mate. Scott, <laughs> yeah, I often say when I'm doing a speech, behind every successful man's a pretty surprised woman. Has Anne been surprised? Because <laughs> she's, yeah, she's oh, hung in there with you course. for a long time, that poor woman. She has, mate. Uh, We've been married 30 years, but yeah, yeah, I know. And, uh, and um, she's fairly on. objective about her observations about you, isn't she? Yes, mate. Look, we um, she married a carpenter, and as far as she's concerned, she's still married to a carpenter. She doesn't get heavily involved in the TV side of things. I'm just going off to work. Um, and that's my attitude, too, to the children, always because the kids have been born with me on the telly. And um, I've never said I'm going to, to television or anything like that. I've always said I'm just going to work when they were little. So they didn't make a big deal of it ever. Um, and, and Anne has always been the same way as well. She she doesn't get caught up in the red carpet events or or anything like that. Or I've got a beggar to go and buy a new dress and um, for the Logies or something like that. She wore the same dress for the Logies five years in a row. And um, <laughs> she said, no one's looking at me. Yeah, you got to love that, haven't you? Yeah, for like, sure. I love that because she's a chippy's wife. You yeah. know, she's not... She, and she was old, she was thirty five when we got we started with this, and it took you know five years for it to heat up as well. So you know we were well and truly parents, and we, I was just out there trying to make a quid, and and we we don't go to openings or you know we get asked to be on the cover of Woman's Day or Woman's Thing, and we always say no because Anne doesn't want to do that, and she doesn't want the kids in there. Yeah. So we've we did it once when they were little years ago, and that's the only time we've done it. We've done it, and so we sort of. The family side of things, we keep out of it well and truly. Have you ever sung her the song, If I Were a Carpenter and You Were a Lady? <laughs> I'm not a very good singer, Peter. So uh, I don't know if she appreciates that. I'd, but, love, I'd uh, love to look, see it if he's so funny. Yeah, well, we, we could do that one. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know if she'd enjoy that at all. But I, I think, mate, that um, I've been so lucky mm. that Anne is a, um, a terrific mother and a great, terrific wife, but she's she's also she's uh, thrifty is the wrong word. She's not thrifty, but she's not a, she's not like extravagant. Yeah, and it would very easily be for Anne to be extravagant in our situation at the moment because I worked extremely hard. I bought and sold a few houses. We have made a quid. That's obvious, and uh, it would easy easily be for Anne to to be really extravagant and show offy, but she's not in any way, shape, or form, and just goes about a business as if I'm going to work and she's raising a family. So I'm, I'm extremely lucky. Now, you've, you, you're involved in a lot of stuff to help the industry and apprentices and all that sort of stuff. What what are the, the big issues aside from television and your family that you care about? Uh, well, my biggest thing is apprenticeships. You know, I, I've, been, I've been an advocate for that and working on that for many, many years for both sides of government. Um, I've worked for the Labor Party and, and I've worked for the Liberal Party. And um, I don't care who I work for as long as we get kids in apprenticeships and make it available for them. That's the big thing. I've got to get hosts, being a bloke like me, to take an apprentice on. 
And uh, yeah, my time's passed. I, I did. I did my time. I've, I had five apprentices uh, over the years, and and now I need the next generation of tradesmen to do exactly the same thing. And I also need to try and not convince, but just let kids know that are coming through year 10, 11, that a VET training, as in what we know as the tape training system, is as good as uni, if not better. You know, you don't always have to go to university. Go and get a trade. There's over 400 different trades out there. And, of course, all the parents out there that are sending their kids in only think of carpenter, plumber, electrician, hairdresser, and so on. But there's 400 different training courses you can do through the VET system. And I'm just trying to get that word out, mate, uh, about that it's available. And it's mm. something you should look at and something that parents should look at because the biggest influences of kids today are their parents, of course, and they're the ones that are directing them, you must go to uni. But that's not always the case. You don't, you must, you don't have to always go to uni. There's plenty of things to do in, uh, in VET training. What would you advise to anyone who is trying to make it into the media? Because a lot of young people love the media. What advice would you yeah. give? Well, it's a very changing environment these days. When I started out, the networks made shows and they paid you. And then you, if you did well, you kept on. But of course, there's digital now. There's there's YouTube. There's there's so many different uh, avenues to go through the media. I, I don't know whether the old story about getting going and knocking on the door at Channel Nine. Um, is a bit of a tough one because mm. uh, it does happen. And, you know, internships are the way to go, I think, if you want to get into the media. That's, I've got a few internships for people over the years. I uh, just got one recently for a young fella in sport at Channel 9. And, uh, you know, he, he, if, if you show promise and you work really hard as an intern, you, you might have a chance of getting a call back and starting out at the bottom. I think that's the big thing. You've got to remember that when you, if you want to start in the media, you're going to have to start as a runner like all the young people that work on the block here. The first job they get out of um, drama school or whatever course they do is being a runner. And that means going to get um, the executive producer a copy or you're just yeah. running around, getting things for people. And then if you do a good job at our company, we pop you up to the next grade. Do a good job, what do you want to do? Sound, camera production. We put you in the right direction. So we're very good in this company that I work for um, at promoting young people. So that's what you've got to do if you want to get into the media is start as a work experience kid an intern or try and find a job as a runner and just keep going around to every production house and every uh, every show that's been made, every network, and say, I want to be a runner. And, of course, internships are a way to get your foot in the door for that one. Now, I wrote this question down. I thought, gee, this could be a curveball for a, a, a bloke like Scott, but I'm going to ask you anyway. The answer could be funny. What's the best book you've ever read? Oh, mate, well, the best book, and I... I I know this answer straight away because I bought this book for about 50 people over the years. My kids have all read it. My wife's read it twice. And it's A Fortunate Life by A.B. Fakey. Mm. Um, my favourite book of all time. I've read it about three or four times because I just need to revisit it every now and then. Mm. And it's just an appreciation of the Australian life back in the day, how hard things were for this young man, Albert Fakey, or Bertie when he was a boy. And how he, he uh, got through it all and with a smile on his face to write a book called A Fortunate Life. But he had a terrible life leading up to going to the First World War. Mm. His, his childhood was horrific. And he, he said it was a fortunate life because he had a beautiful family and all that sort of thing. Have you read that book, Pete? I'm sure no, but I, I tell you what, I will. That's a, a great answer, mate. And uh, 
I think you've had a fortunate life and I think I've been fortunate to know you as well. And thanks for joining me on The Switzer Show. Thanks very much, Pete. I, I have had a fortunate life and, and, uh, and you know, I, I value your friendship, buddy, over those all those years. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Well, that was Scott Cam. And for those of you who would like to know what my expert mates or what I like in the stock market each week, then have a look at my Switzer report. It goes out Monday, Thursday and Saturday. And my last tip, which was Monday week, was Zipco, which put on 74% in six trading days. That even shocked me. Um, Just go to switzerreport.com.au for a free 21-day trial. I think you'll like it. Joining me now is Greg Jones um, from Hunter Bay Partners, and I'm going to have to ask you about that as well. Uh, Greg has had a, 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 a fantastic career, um, from school teacher to political advisor, ended up with Rams Home Loans, but I think the more fascinating aspect of uh, his older career is that he's a shareholder in a little publication called The Batuta Advocate. Greg Jones, uh, welcome to the Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. I'll, I'll just correct you on that one. I'm a shareholder in the Batuta Bitter yeah. part of it, the beer company. Okay. And um, that's that's a, a business that was going extremely well. COVID, of course, slowed it down a bit. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're reopening this week. Okay. Explain the link between Batuta Bitter and the Batuta Advocate. Batuta Advocates, um, Charlie and Archer, uh, the two boys that uh, invented it and they run it and they're, they're particularly talented at, at, at creating the, probably Australia's leading sort of um, satire, s- satirical sort of mm. um, news. They've done some very funny stuff in the last couple of weeks. And um, but they and they also invented the great term Scotty from marketing, which everyone seems to have embraced. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and they've, they've been pursued by politicians all the time to, can we come and you know, launch our thing here or can you do this? And, yeah. and they've, they've done some very good interviews with politicians, Turnbull, um, Morrison, and, and uh, they did a lot with Barnaby Joyce when he was around and it was very funny. Natural stuff. talent is Barnaby. <laughs> yeah, he fits in very nicely. With, they don't have to do too much hard work to create satire. Yeah. Have, have they come to you and asked about things that they might do to grow the rich? Because they've got a big... Rich and you were in the rich growing business, particularly when you're in political stuff. But all the stuff you've done has all been about growing the rich. Exactly right. Yeah, I've never really changed my career other than I sort of came out out of teaching and went into. Which is always trying to sell something, <laughs> but it's very hard selling the students. But go on. Exactly, exactly right. And then we just over the years, I just ended up marketing different products, albeit politicians, radio stations, uh, home loans. Uh, issues management points uh, that we did with around the world and different things but it was never any different to a marketing exercise and understanding a market and how you get your message across. Okay I want to talk about the past but as I say a lot of people are fascinated that a couple of guys you know stole the name of a, a town that really doesn't exist anymore but used to western Queensland. Well, see, that's, that's where you're wrong Peter it does exist. Yeah, it does exist. <laughs> Is anyone living there? There's one person who lives there. And, Is it uh, really? But if you if you followed the live shows of, yeah. of Batuta, you would have seen that they um, they had broken the city down into different different zones, similar to that of Sydney, yeah. uh, and the different characters characters that lived in those parts of, of the city yeah. and how they 
carried things on. And okay. you often read about them in their articles. Uh, but is, is there real historical relevance or have they falsified the history? It's fake history, is oh, no, it? No, the, the paper did exist. It was <laughs> the earliest paper. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not fake history. Yeah. No fake news here. Because, yeah, satire does have play around with reality sometimes for the sake of a good story and a good laugh. Only as much as the, as the existing media channels do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, they're very good. I remember we had, we had a meeting with John Hardigan, who is always terrific. And counter. by the way, if you tell me, John Hardigan was the CEO of News Corp. That's right. Yep. And John's always very good with sound advice. And he just said to them, boys, stick in your lane. Mm. Don't move away from where you are and be honest to yourselves, he mm. said, and you won't go wrong. So if you try to do too many things to too many people, mm. you'll lose the plot. All right, but this is the question a lot of small businesses out there would love to know. How did they actually grow that uh, market? You know, it's a big – what are the numbers? Over a million people? <laughs> it's, a bit, it's over a million people follow it. And, yeah. and interestingly enough, in, the, in recent years, it's, it's, it used to skew towards – males mm. um, between sort of 18 and 40 mm. and now it sort of skews males and females between 18 and 55. 55, yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's sort of increasing. I think mainly <clears throat> people's children say, oh, Dad, Mum, you should read this and yeah. and people get the, the sense of humour. And yeah. in our family, I mean, the, the, there's sort of six people who, who sort of all follow it religiously and mm. um, read it every day. Yeah. Um, but they grew it because they... They picked a market. They, the, both the boys were sort of um, came out of a private school education, so they sort of started the rugby set and the, mm. and the posy set or whatever it was, mm. and they were able to satire that, which everyone understood. Mm. And then as it's gone on, they've been able to pick more general news items and general positions around, mm. the, around the country. Uh, now, Batuta being a, a Queensland... Queensland, yeah. Uh, the men would have been called blokes. Uh, the women would have been called Sheilas. Are there any Sheilas on the Batuta Advocate um, oh, abso- team? Absolutely, yeah. Now there's uh, there's a number of women that work there, and uh, both as sort of uh, writers and advisors on, mm. on on the way things should be handled um, yeah. to different markets yeah. and uh, and to different readers, um, as long as it's satirical and it fits in with the mm. the mode. I mean, it's you've only got to follow it every day. You see. The, They've picked up all of the sections of those. Mm. But have they ever done any strategic marketing or has it purely been organic and word of mouth? No, it's always been organic and word of mouth. I mean, to create the word of mouth, I mean, they we couldn't believe it. They did a live tour and then we finished up and we played every capital city. Mm. Um, but then we finished up in the culmination that was playing the Opera House mm. where we sold out a 2,000-seat venue um, with the two boys standing on stage having a beer and talking about Batuta. Mm. And the, we showed the map of Batuta and how it breaks down and then we related it back to other things. Um, and it's, it, it was amazing that the, the crowd... And, but unfortunately, in the middle of that show, Rupert Murdoch had phoned and tried to take them over and mm. uh, they were deeply offended and mm. there was a huge cry from the audience not to do it, not to do it. <laughs> it wasn't quite as, as civil as that, but it was. Yeah. Uh, it got great motivation. Yeah. At the, at the but it, it, it wasn't really Rupert doing it. It's just obvious because they're doing so well. He, he would try to take them Well, he was, he was on the screen. And, uh, and he, <laughs> the real Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, the real Rupert Murdoch. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. But so, all right, that's a great story in the same right. Let's talk about other things and other people you've tried to sell. You, you represented Neville Rand in, in his heyday, is that right? The great Premier of New South Wales? Yeah, in the first, the first by-election in Earlwood with Ken Gabb was the member <coughs> and uh, I think Alan Jones was, at, was 
um, he was the candidate for the Liberal Party. Was he really? Yeah, yeah. and um, we had that was that was Neville. Neville had a majority of one at that stage. And and, so it was a vital. And so this was a vital win, and it was Eric Willis, who was the old Liberal Premier, who mm. re, who'd retired. So that was my first foray into politics, and then from there I went to work on the staff. I worked with Frank Walker. Uh, and we were sort of, each of us were allocated to a minister to work with the minister and we worked as a government, there was a lot of consultation and every morning there'd be determinations as to what we would deliver for the state that day. It was a very civilised and, and smart operation. Okay. So you said you worked with Rod Muir. Does that mean that you worked uh, for him with Triple M in those days or...? I met Rod um, during the... Um, during the, the time in government, and um, there'd been a bit of a crisis in the, in the rock and roll industry after the ticket tech failure. Or mm. it wasn't ticket tech; it was CompuTicket, I think. It yeah, was CompuTicket. Yeah. yeah. And the rock and roll industry had had a lot of credibility problems, and of course, Muir was the leading rock and roll station. Mm. And together uh, with the government, we actually created Narara. This was in '83, '84, and did Narara Rock Festival mm. with um, Eric Robinson who owned Jans and Michael Koppel and Michael Gadinsky and Peter Ricks, and we put together a huge venue over three days. Um, Australian version of Woodstock. It was. Well, yeah, it was a bit more civilised than that, but it, um, but it basically got the confidence back into the Australian rock and roll industry for international acts to be able to come in after they'd lost so much money during the CompuTicket sort of scandal. All right, so obviously... You escaped the potential boredom of school teaching, went into the exciting world of politics and then rock bands, and then you ended up at Rams Homelands. So how, how did you end up in Rams? Oh, John Kinghorn approached me and uh, he had Alco Finance and he'd, he'd been looking at a way to um, securitise airlines, uh, airplanes, because that was Alco's main Australian leverage leasing company. Was mm. the, that was It used to lease... Uh, Planes, ships, trains—it it, it created whole systems um, in leasing. But securitisation was an opportunity to do it. But in looking at the market, John had discovered that there was uh, a big gap in in Australian securitisation mm. for mortgages, mm. and he decided he wanted to go ahead and do it. This is so early nineteen nineties, I presume. This early nineteen nineties, mm. and then in ninety one, we went out and we created Raymond the Ram, and uh, and then we just built it up, into mm. a, and, and we ended up listing it. Just prior to the <laughs> the GFC, um, with a book of about fourteen billion dollars, uh, and had been very successful. And, and we you know, we held a reasonable size, probably about ten percent of the, the the Australian mortgage market. Mm. And we Rams are still going today. It's uh, albeit it's owned by Westpac. Yeah, um, but it's good. Yeah. So um, a couple of questions has always bothered me. The voice of Raymond the Ram was that Alvin Purple. Um, it was. Yeah, I always. What's his name? Is Graham Blundell. Graham Blundell. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and Graham very seldom tells people that, but as I just sit at home, that sounds like Alvin Purple, uh, aka Graham Blundell. Um, it was terrific. Yeah, it was. It's a very. It was a, in fact, I remember the act. I remember thinking to myself, who, "Who's that voice?" Is is quite true. Well, it was all uh, Blundell himself introduced um, Raymond's brother Bruce when we had specials running on different things. Yeah, right. And so Bruce. Um, Bruce the Ram would um, would come up and sort of have other ideas. Um, mm. but, uh, so wh um, what have you learned? Because the people listening to this are either going to be trying to promote themselves as employees within an organisation so they get noticed. And I often say uh, 
Kath from Kath and Kim teaches a lot of people a lot of stuff about marketing, which is to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. And that's essentially, that's what you want to do with marketing. You want all eyes to come to you and not to go somewhere else. Where did you, where do you think you learned the skill to pick out what people will go and look at that, or, or listen to? Well, I think you've got to, you've got to believe, A, the customer is always right. Very, very, very old saying, yeah. and that, that applies to everything. Um, and you've got to believe in what the customer tells you. So when we were doing, I remember we had, before we invented Raymond the Ram, we had six different concepts we were running with, which we thought were really clever. Mm. And Raymond the Ram was probably the simplest of all right. of those things, but it represented what we would forgot to realise was that the Ram was an iconic Australian figure. Yeah. Australians really loved it. Mm. And, and a great success of, of mm. Rams was mm. because the punter, the, the mum, and, mum and dad in the house, um, the, the average Australian... Related to it. Related to it. And it, that, be, that became our great strength. And then the message is just tell it the way it is. And that comes from an old John Singo saying, you mm. know, repeat, Pete, Pete, and it's sweet, sweet, sweet. And mm. then his other great saying was, you know... Where do you get it? Mm. And so as long as your message tells you what it is, how much it costs and where do you get it, uh, you don't need to do a lot more than that and yeah. you can't be too cute. I, I guess the, the, the question a lot of people would be asking is, you know, to understand what a consumer wants or thinking, did you use focus groups to help you get through that maze? Because, you know, we sometimes think we understand the average Australian, but you get a real shock. I think the May 18 election last year shocked a lot of Australians that uh, that John, John um, that um, uh, Bill Shorten was rejected uh, when most people thought Labor was going to win. Yeah, but that's it. Once again, it's, it's you've, you've got to understand your audience. I mean, I, mean, I know Bill and he's a, a terrific guy, but you can't have your treasurer come up and say, well, that's that's what we're going to bring in. If you don't like it, don't vote for us. Yeah. No one in politics has the right to say that. Wow. Um, well, it's a true position. Yeah. But and until that time, I thought Chris was pretty smart. But that was, the, that was without doubt, <laughs> the dumbest go, thing ever said. I, I sort of saw it and I thought, you can't be serious. Yeah. Why would you say that? Yeah. And also to, to realise that there was an, an audience, a large audience of people who had spent their lives. You remember, at the point at which people are retiring... They've paid a lot of tax. Mm. I mean, if you go back to how much tax you paid, like I was born in 53, um, and you pay a lot of tax on your way through, and mm. then you expect a bit out of it. But to have people change the deck chairs on you um, when you're sort of around 60... When you're retiring, right, you can't get a pension because the government's told you you have to look after yourself. Yeah. And they want to tax you heavily because you've done a good job at it. And, then, and, then you, yeah. and you can't believe some of the things they come up with. It's like, you know, responsible lending. And it's like, but if you're over 55, we shouldn't lend to you. Yeah. But we want you to work until you're 70. Mm. Oh, we might buy a new house and I'm working again. You know, it's a whole range of things that people are ignoring. Mm. And you've got to have your message to be consistent and you've got to realise how people live. I mean... People forget how people live. Yeah. Um, and, and governing for all is what it's about. You need to make sure that everyone, not too many people fall through the cracks. I mean, the interesting part of, of the COVID solutions, I think, is A, they got onto it pretty quickly and they created job keeper and job seeker. Mm. Um, and they'll probably, I would imagine, the common sense would tell you that they would phase that out instead of cutting it off in one hit. 
But there's also a range of other things, job creator. Well, um, yeah, home builder. But I don't know if that's going to be a real plus for them. They, they've done their best with it, but whether it'll work or not is No, other. but it, it, it's uh, the, the possibility of, of creating new jobs. There's plenty of opportunities to do so. And there's also, you can be, and businesses are changing. I mean, the, the one thing that's, that the, the COVID pandemic has, has taught Australian businesses, I think, is how to be efficient. Mm. Um, yeah. That's if, and, and then they've got to look at whether they survived, I mean, um, in that period or not. And then, no one's done the sums yet. Right. Um, and there will be a lot that won't, but there will be a lot that will have done better. And there's a lot that have probably realised, but that's a drama in itself. If mm. you realise that you can actually run your business on 20% less people, that's bad news for a lot of people. Yeah. So you need to work out how you solve that mm. particular problem. There's well, no doubt that online businesses will do exceptionally well. Mm. It's funny you talk about the businesses that will do well and those who won't. I was interviewing uh, an American fund manager this morning who's got a very good fund from WCM and uh, they bought Lululemon at the bottom of the market <laughs> and it's up 100% since oh, then. It would be. I mean, yeah, because people are all hanging at home in leisure gear. Yeah. And, and even, if you, even if you're just there doing yoga off the television screen, Correct. you've got to look yeah. fabulous. And even blokes are wearing Lululemon. That's just their, their strength. Anyway, um, let's go to why Hunter Bay Partners? Like, what's happening with Hunter Bay? Hunter Bay, a very old friend of mine, John McGuigan, uh, used to be the, 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 um, the global uh, chairman of uh, this is, ba- Baker McKenzie. This is, is also uh, Crispy Cream, well, John McGuigan. Uh, uh, People should know he, he brought it to the country. Yeah, and when he he uh, retired from being the, the global chairman of Baker McKenzie, he went in and he created Hunter Bay. Mm. And Hunter Bay was a, uh, a bunch of like-minded people who would come in on different projects and, and do things. And, yeah. he, and he did bring in Krispy Kreme. Mm. Um, and, he, and he fought his way through the morass of, of, of fast food in Australia, which yeah. is not easy. Yeah. And he actually made a terrific, you know, terrific job of it. And uh, he... Um, in turn, with then Hunter Bay Partners, uh, as we've all sort of come in and out. I lived in Hong Kong for a while, and but we have an office in Hong Kong with one of our old mates uh, who used to run the ANZ up there. He's retired. He's not retired, but he runs his own little business, and so he's a Hunter Bay Partner there. Mm. We've got the guy who used to be the Price Waterhouse, um, uh, a Korean desk uh, in in Korea, and he, he's the Hunter Bay Partner there. Mm. We've got a guy in Japan uh, who's one of uh, was around. Sounds like the CIA got someone placed everywhere. Yeah, more in my five. We've got good manners and we tend to work work quietly and achieve things. What's the future? Uh, the future. We all head in different directions. Um, John's got a few good things happening in um, in the health in the health space. Uh, I'm looking at sort of expanding. Um, from the Rams experience into sort of focusing purely on strata mm. as people change and sort of start to live in a vertical world. Mm. Um, and also, you know, we've got this massive cladding problem that's going on and, and remediation of buildings. Mm. So I'm trying to cater for that, which is not far off. Um, I'm working with the old Rams team to put that together. Mm. Um, like the Bridge put the old team together, right? Eh? Bring the band back, put yeah. them together, mm. and, um, and I'm Ringo. Um, <laughs> it's, hopefully it works. <laughs> Well, Greg, thanks for joining us on the program. I think you've given people a lot of insights on what you can do to leverage off your talent. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be here. And that was Greg Jones, who's obviously had a very interesting life, and to end up connected to the Batuta Advocate just underlines how 
how much of an interesting life he certainly has had. Well, um, if you prefer to be rich rather than poor, then I suggest you have a look at my new book called Join the Rich Club. If it doesn't help you get richer and money smarter, I will refund. It's usually $24.95 plus postage and handling, but my colleague, John Bragg, says... We've reduced the price for you wonderful listeners to $17.47 plus postage and handling. And yes, I will refund it if it's no good for you in terms of your goal to get richer and money smarter. Just go to switzerstore.com.au. Well, in the age of the coronavirus and the challenges to many businesses out there, I'm always trying to work out how business owners have coped with this unbelievable period. So I'm talking to Chris Van Hoof, who's a general manager at Eden Health Retreat in the Queensland uh, hinterland area back of the Gold Coast. Chris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, I guess i got a lot of sympathy for anyone who runs a business. What's it been like since the coronavirus came to town? Yeah, look, it's sort of it's not something that I know that in hindsight you kind of saw it coming but it did creep up on us in the hospitality industry relatively quickly um, it was all within the space of a week that uh, we decided that you know for the, for the health and safety of our staff and our guests that it was time for us to uh, to cease our operations or push pause and then I think um, within 24 hours the government had placed you know put some restrictions in place that, that meant that that call was the right one anyway so mm. um, look it's not been it's not been the easiest time but it's also been a time that once you get over that initial shock and that difficulty of, of what it means for, for the general day-to-day operations of the business and then also your staff, um, you know, it's a chance to sort of really dig deep and look into, you know, what are the what are the positive things that can come out of an opportunity like this and how do you reset and get ready to, to re-enter the marketplace? Yeah, okay. So I, I want to get to the positives without a doubt. Um, how did the government's JobKeeper strategy how did that work for you? Well, I mean, it came in a little bit after we had made our decision. And um, as you'd be well aware, there was a lot of uncertainty around the exact, uh, you know, the, the exact, um, how that would exactly play out to mm. different businesses of different sizes. So we were sort of caught a little bit off guard by that. Um, but it is something that we have, you know, we, it's not as if our revenue has decreased by thirty percent, it literally just came to a grinding halt. So when, when, to when zero. The, yeah. yeah, when it when it all the details are passed through Parliament, it was certainly something that we were able to um, to apply for and we've been able to receive and then help a number of our staff out and, and then just continue with ourselves. You know, there's still still some work to be done whilst you're closed and keeping in keeping guests informed and mm. keeping the relationship up with, with your um with your clients. Uh, what about the, the ATOs, the, the, the effective tax rebate on wages paid? Uh, is that at least something that also helps you get over this? I won't make up, but does it help you get through this tough period? Yeah, there's no doubt it does. Um, I think we won't know the full implications of that until you know we're back up and trading again and we can look back retrospectively and see exactly you know what effect it had on our bottom line, and how it how how much assistance we did get. Mm. Um, you know, it's, with any government stimulus packages, the the very first layer looks very attractive and very inviting, but give it long term, you know, give it a little bit more time to play out and see how you know what the other ramifications are. It's certainly something that we'll be looking to do as well. Now, you were doing uh, renovations. Does that mean that you're also carrying debt and? Is that going to be a worry to you going forward? 
No, look, we've we've been very fortunate that our owner has, um, for the last several years, had a development application in process and approved, and um, was was probably sitting on some capital to invest back into the business at, at the appropriate time. And you know, now with a pause in the business, with you know no clients on site, as you as you mentioned, we're in the beautiful Crumman Valley and the Gold Coast hinterland are quite very quiet and unique and, and peaceful place. And if you put a building site or a construction zone in the middle of that, it can be quite disruptive to your day-to-day operations. Mm. Um, so I think our, our owner was, was certainly, um, you know, ready to ready to execute on our on our build. And it's certainly an exciting time. And it, you know, a lot of, it shows a lot of faith in, in our offerings and the wellness industry as a whole. Mm. I think that we will globally, we'll come out of this with health as a hell of a lot, you know, a much higher priority for everyone. And, um, you know, we, we've been a little bit sort of reflective in, in what we do here at Eden is we give people a chance to, to literally push pause, to, to stop and reflect and in many cases reprioritize, you know, what they want out of life. And mm. essentially on a global scale, that's what everyone's been doing <laughs> throughout this, this shutdown. Yep. So uh, we see our offering only, only appealing more and more post-corona. Yes. And, um, yeah, something that we're excited to be able to increase our offerings yeah. as part of this renovation. Now, obviously, there are probably thousands of people dying to cross the New South Wales Queensland border to get to you, and then there are Victorians who'd like to do it as well, and what and people from overseas. But have Queenslanders been able to come to the business to this point in time? And no, we haven't opened up. Our, our gates at all to mm. any guests um, and mostly due to the government restrictions that are still in place yep. uh, we run a group um, retreat here so as far as dining and as far as activities as well as you know therapies whether it be um, consultations with our therapists or, or masseuses etc there's a lot of restrictions that are still in place I think I believe for another um, another week or so I think restaurants and cafes are only at 20 people at the moment we mm. average you know 35 to 40 guests a week so that sort of puts a restriction in place with that as far as the the political football that is the Queensland border situation um, there's no doubt that that will impact on our business and the sooner that that is opened up the sooner we'll, we will be able to to bring guests back in but at the same time we're mindful of the renovations and the work that are taking place um, that are quite extensive and when we do open we certainly we certainly will be um, very you know, mindful of, of offering that premium offering that we that we always have. So, so in a perfect world, you know, uh, of course, builders have never really operated well in a perfect world. Uh, when do you think the doors will be open and people can, you know, chaotically Look, rush to relax at Eden Health Retreat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think there are quite a few people who are chaotically trying to relax that's yeah, for sure, sure uh, we, we have we've had no shortage of people wanting to book in stage later in the year which is tr- terrific and it yeah. just goes to show how you know how, how strong of a relationship we had with our clients beforehand but i'd be sort of thinking um mid to late august perhaps early september depending on as you said that perfect world that builders operate in we've got a, a whole weather situation that we'll have to take into account as well in that time if we have a, a lot of wet weather that could put things off track but um you know, we've got some amazing offerings. We've got a, a brand new permaculture garden. We've got a custom-built kitchen and dining facility, as well as twelve new luxury cabins. So it's not it's not small renovations. We're not just putting a lick of paint on it. Mm. We really are um, investing hard into the future of Eden and and opening up and expanding on our offerings. What, what percentage in the past have been overseas guests? A small percentage, to be honest with you. Um, 
and I would say under 10%. Mm. Uh, we get we get quite a few from New Zealand and a little bit from that Southeast Asia market, and then mm. we get a lot of expats from um, you know the States, the, the Hong Kong, the, the UK, or Europe, um, who generally tie a visit to us in with a visit back to, to um, seeing parents or, or, or um, family that they have living here. Yeah, what if those people who who may well be hanging out to the day you open up your doors? What practices do you think people can put in place to refocus on their health every day before they get a uh, a new teaching from you guys? Yeah, well, I think adding some structure to your day is what some people have perhaps lost by being at home, and that's you know something that's really common for people who work at home before the shutdown days. You really need to structure your day, so you do have some sort of practice and some routine to keep yourself. Uh, mindful of, of you know, how the day unfolds and your own your own position in that. That's something that we certainly um, encourage. Whether that be some you know really easy breathing exercises or some mindful exercises, even just getting outside and getting some bare feet on the grass and spending a little bit of time in nature is a really good thing to do to just create some perspective in your day. Um, and then you know that's obviously a big part of our offering. We're set on just under 400 acres of subtropical rainforest so that that environment is a, is a really big thing um, but as far as pre-opening and what I what I think Mary would encourage people to be doing at the moment is yeah really taking stock and putting some structure to their days and giving themselves some time for them but, you know to, to step out of that routine of just you know waking up having breakfast and sitting in front of a computer all day. Hey, hey Chris you know, you know obviously being GM at Eden Health Retreat did you have to sort of pass you know like Good health and good attitude. Things. <laughs> like, oh, you, you've you run hotels. You can come here and run this. Did you have to, <laughs> did you have to sort of oh, tick a lot of boxes so you didn't look like a you know, a normal plonker who just could end up in a nice white outfit and started <laughs> preaching the value well, of health? <laughs> my history is uh, I've been at their retreat for nine years and and um, in various capacities. Yeah. So it's only really in the last sort of twelve to eighteen months that I've been in the general managers chair but mm. yeah definitely health is a part of my lifestyle peter and something mm. that um yeah I, I try and walk the walk as much as i talk the talk yeah okay um and i've got a little note from my uh, my researcher who says something that is there any new type of yoga and she's got an example is it qigong qigong qigong, yeah, qigong. <laughs> we've been doing qigong for for many years here at Eden, but it is definitely becoming a little bit more mainstream um and you know there was there was a day not so long ago probably 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 a little bit hard to stretch the memory but yoga used to be quite a foreign word people didn't know what that was mm. um, and now you find it on you know every street corner yeah. qigong is uh, is a is a chinese practice it's sort of like a chinese yoga um, stooped in eastern chinese medicine which i think um, you know our whole thing is that your body is healthy it it wants to be healthy we will help you unlock those keys to do that and i think that sort of leans a little bit into that uh, eastern chinese medicine mm. philosophy of creating the perfect situation for your body to be the best um, that it can be, whether that be through movement and nutrition and, and mindfulness and, and those, those sort of practices. I, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, Chris, and I can remember a lady called, I think it was Swami Saravasta, who used to come on television and for five minutes kind of stagger you what she could do with her body. Um, oh, yeah. But yoga was just yoga. But now, as you say, there's like there's more there's more streams of yoga than there are coloured socks in the world nowadays. Oh, absolutely. I think, and I think that, you know, I think on a whole, globally, uh, I think people are taking ownership of their health. They really are, yeah. rather than sort of going to these gurus and saying, fix me, they're going on their own journey, which is it's, it's great and it's exciting. 
and there's, there's no one size fits all when, when you start that journey. Are you staggered at the growth of something that sounds very much of your, your sector, mindfulness? Mindfulness is, is really being taken up by, by people who've been mindless most of their life. I think it's, it's a fantastic thing, but I would never have tipped this 10 years ago. No, but you probably wouldn't have also tipped the fact that we're, you know, we're running our lives at a at a at a pace that is like no other. We've never seen it before. You know, the yep. amount of data that we consume and the amount of information that crosses in front of us every single day. There's no, you know, the little hamster inside our head is running as fast as it's ever run. Mm. So when you've got an increase on that side of the ledger, you've sort of also got to understand that the the craving or the desire or even that you know that natural high that you get from actually finding that space to just breathe and relax for for a split second of time is is such a relief and yeah I guess that's um that's I, I see the wellness industry only only continuing as long as the outside world keeps running faster the wellness industry will be on the <laughs> other side of that trying to help slow people down that's a really good point now I, of course I every time I, I see Eden Health Retreat I have a, a feeling of hate and disdain because I was supposed to go <laughs> when Maureen my wife went there and she yes. came back and she she loved it enormously now so therefore I asked two questions the first question is what do you think is the most mind gobsmacking thing that normal people find um, wonderful about your retreat? And the second part of the question is, what's the the booking list like if someone wants to get in? How long, if you started (laughs) in, say, let's assume you start in uh, end of August, is it going to be hard to get in 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 September, October, November? Okay, well, I'll answer them in, in order. The, yeah. the, the most mind uh, gobsmacking thing about the property is, is probably the actual property itself. Um, you know, we, it, it's hard to describe on just still photos. We're trying to put a lot more photos and videos out there, but we really are set at the base of Springbrook Mountain in this beautiful, amazing landscape, picture creeks, and it's all that sort of, you know, what, yeah. everything you'd expect from the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because a lot of people think that that's what we've named it after, but Eden was, uh, was the name of the farmer who originally had the block of land oh, way okay. back when. Mm. Um, so it's just a bit of a coincidence. But yeah, definitely the property itself is amazing and then our facilities are obviously world class. As far as the booking, uh, the book, it's certainly heating up and I'm not sure whether that's a result of people being locked up for too long or, or whether it's the excitement around these renovations. But mm. we're, we're currently, through our website, we are. there is a form that people are filling out and requesting dates to come and um, and more information as soon as we know more of when we can open up our gates. Mm. And I'd expect that you know from now up until the end of the year, we'll be quite busy. And then uh, early in the year, January is always, a, that new year period is always an extremely busy time for us because I think people have probably done the same as what they've done now. They're spending a lot more time at home, yeah. maybe the, the, a little bit closer to the fridge perhaps, and uh, <laughs> yes. the desire to, to have a, a week of health is certainly um, yeah. at an all-time high. Yeah, I, I've noticed most of my friends are getting fatter by the minute. Fatter <laughs> by the Zoom call, yeah. <laughs> Zoom call, exactly. Chris, yeah. uh, great to talk to you, mate, and good luck. I hope you uh, guys are open and thriving as soon as possible. Thanks, Peter. Always enjoy our chats. And that's the show for today. I hope you enjoyed the clues from Scott Cam, the interesting life of Greg Jones and the fact he was related to the Batuta advocate, which has shocked a lot of people around here. And finally, of course, the idea of a relaxing life at the Eden Health Retreat. That is something I'm even looking forward to. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.